When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Lexicon Valley is brought to you by Headspace. If you've ever been curious about meditation or would like to reacquaint yourself with the practice, then go to headspace.com slash lexicon and try the Take 10 program. It's guided meditation for 10 days, 10 minutes a day, absolutely free. Give it a try at headspace.com slash lexicon. And by Club W, leading the grape-to-glass wine revolution. Answer just six simple questions at clubw.com, and their algorithm will create a palette profile just for you. Get wine directly to your door, perfectly customized to match your taste. For 50% off your first order, go to clubw.com slash lexicon. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number 76, titled Tears of Joy, Identity, and a Prism of Isms, wherein we discuss your very own 2015 Words of the Year. Hey, Mikey. Hey, Bobby. How you doing, buddy? Splendid, thank you. And your own self? I'm great. I'm great. Bobby, 2015 has come and gone. We laughed. We cried. We breathed another year of breaths, those of us lucky enough to do so. And now it's time for some reflection, our second annual... Wait, 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 wait. You left some things out. Accrued debt, had minor surgeries and or procedures, and were unfulfilled in our sporting team ambitions. So, I mean, as long as you're going to list the events of 2015, I think you should be fairly comprehensive, in my opinion. But those are perennial events for you, right? Those aren't particular to 2015, although I guess nothing I listed was, really. Truthfully, my life is Groundhog Day, but maybe we'll discuss that further in episode 77. Okay, so this is our second annual roundup of a few notable words of the year as chosen by some of our lexicographer colleagues. Any thoughts, Bob, before we get to that on this past year, language-related or otherwise, now is the time? Hmm. Well, there were a number of words used, Mike, in 2015. I don't have an absolute tally, but it was a significant number. A lot of people said a lot of things, is what you're saying. Exactly. (laughs) I couldn't have put it better myself. And um, I didn't hear it all or read it all. I have people for that. But yes, it was a year in which many words were uttered and typed. Arguably too many words by too many people. More of us should stay silent more of the time. 
Okay, so here's what we did last year. We called Catherine Connor Martin of Oxford and Peter Sokolowski of Merriam-Webster and Jane Solomon of Dictionary.com, and we asked them why each of their respective publications chose its particular word of the year. They all do that every year, and so we thought we'd ask them again. First up is Oxford and our friend Catherine Connor Martin, who is head of U.S. Dictionaries at Oxford University Press. Hey, Catherine. Hi. So, Catherine, as a lexicographer, you are a a collector and a definer of words, right? You work for Oxford University Press, which is publisher of the Oxford English Dictionary, which is the most authoritative, most august collector and definer of words in English. And you will not find in the OED or in any Oxford Dictionary, I believe, emojis, because emojis are pictures. They're not words. And yet, Oxford chose as its word of the year an emoji called face with tears of joy. So my question is this. How do you sleep at night? (laughs) Good question, and one that I've been getting a lot, including, you know, from among my colleagues. But the way that we look at word of the year is it's an opportunity to focus on language change. And people have a tendency to see language as immutable. But the OED and Oxford's other dictionaries are actually based on the premise that language is changing all the time. So this is the one time a year that we step back and we remind people that English is changing. What we felt was the really interesting word story this year, as opposed to other types of news stories, was the rise of non-word-based communication as an adjunct to English. This was a year when the use of emoji pictographs really went mainstream, and we saw the Unicode Consortium responding to the needs of its users by producing more racially and culturally diverse emoji characters. Your grandmother knows what an emoji is now, and she didn't know that one or two years ago. And And we saw, in fact, mentions of the word emoji, rose 350% in our tracking corpus this year. But to choose the word emoji, we felt, did not make this point nearly as well as choosing an actual non-word as our, and we did use scare quotes in the press release, word of the year, because what could underscore more this way in which English is changing than to use something that is not a word? And most of us, I think, are now using things that are not words every day, and that's new. All right, first of all, Catherine... My grandmother's dead, and I just don't think it's very kind of you to taunt me that way. Secondly, secondly, tears of joy sounds like some sort of um, skeezy massage parlor. And thirdly, are you going to have the emoji in the dictionary? Um, I'm sorry about your grandmother, (laughs) but Face with Tears of Joy is, in fact, the official name of that image um, as determined by the Unicode Consortium. So we didn't think of that. And no, probably we won't have emoji in the dictionary, but I wouldn't say we would never, as lexicographers, want to explore that. For instance, they're used differently in different geographical regions. Certain emoji have certain meanings beyond their face value that seem worthy of inquiry. So I think there is something there, but they're not worth Hmm. Will this be the first time that Oxford's Word of the Year does not find its way into actual Oxford editions? 
being a word that is in a dictionary is, has never been a requirement. So we have chosen things before that could potentially have been words that would be included, but that turned out not to catch on and so did not end up being included in the dictionary. Okay. So stipulated that 2015 was a breakout year for emoji. Also stipulated that emojis are inarguably a form of communication, right? Albeit one that conveys information in relatively unnuanced packages. I mean, we abandoned pictographs many centuries ago in favor of an alphabet for a reason. That said, there have been a number of studies over the past year in particular that purport to get at the question, is emoji, is the use of emoji language? You use the phrase, Catherine, I think, an adjunct to language. So is that question that researchers seem to be interested in, is that question interesting to you? If so, why? If not, what do you think is a better question that we should be asking about emoji and its relationship to language? Well, emoji are not a language, I would say, you know, from whatever the official definition is, but I don't think that's the interesting question. I do see them as an adjunct to language. What we've seen in electronic communications is the rise of something new, which is synchronous written communication. Written communication taking the place of what used to be face-to-face communication, and that creates requirements for nonverbal like feedback mechanisms? Yeah, it's a proxy. Emoji are a proxy for body language. Exactly. So, And you said that they weren't subtle, but I would say that actually emoji are much more subtle than lol or those emoticons that we used to use. There are many more varieties of them, and there's much more possibility of expressing personality in your emoji choice. So I see them as something more akin to punctuation. And as Bob said, as playing the role of body language, telling someone, yes, I'm listening, I did think that was funny, or I'm rolling my eyes right now and being sarcastic, please don't take what I just wrote seriously. And that's a new need that we have because sometimes we can go through our entire day without ever opening our mouths or exercising our vocal cords. The use of emoji skews younger. That's true of any new form of communication, any new technology that takes advantage of that form of communication. But it seems obvious from the way that emoji are used on the internet and in various kind of instant messaging platforms that it's more of a tool for millennials, Generation Z, whatever they're called now, than it is for, say, baby boomer generations. Do you think that as millennials become middle age, that the use of emoji will continue among them or that they will, like I know some people today who are, say, in their 50s and 60s, that they will see it as juvenile and that they will, I don't know, outgrow the use of that and it will remain more of a young person's way to communicate? Or am I totally wrong about all of this, do you think? I think that images can play an important role in online communication, as we've been discussing. I mean, maybe it will all be using reaction GIFs in the future. And so that will, and that will replace, and I have no idea how we'd ever put deal with those in a dictionary. You know, there are many different ways in which visual elements are entering our communications. But as long as we are communicating through written text, I think that this is a, an important need that needs to be fulfilled. I am sure that the conventions will change. And just like with any other kind of linguistic element, the way that a 40-year-old does it will never be cool. <laughs> I know I can't say any words now because my 14-year-old tells me 
that they are passe or worse and that I'm simply making a fool of myself. I mean, I can't say a thing without getting emoji eye roll from her. (laughs) Young people are an amazing engine of language change and language creativity. And I think that one thing that is true, was probably true of emoji and is certainly true of the slang language that's emerged on the Internet in recent years is that there's a greater awareness of and accessibility of that language to olds and the adoption of olds <laughs> of that language makes it uncool very quickly. And so I think in a way that can speed up the adoption and then the abandonment of linguistic items by young people. Mm-hmm. We find out about it too quickly, and then our kids have to stop saying it. I've spent most of the last 10 years unfriending people who used smiley face and wink emoticons. And I have a similar visceral negative reaction to emoji, although now that there are so many of them, I I have to admit they're kind of useful for giving us exactly the equivalent of facial expressions and body language we were talking about before. Should I be as viscerally annoyed by the kitsch aspect of it as I was with emoticons, or is this version of augmented lexicography actually the real deal? I can't tell you what to say, but I think that there is a kernel in there that is very relevant, which is that there's a corporate aspect to all of this that's not true when we use language. We can invent a slang word and use it, or I I can combine words in any way that I choose to. My use of emoji is dependent upon the Unicode Consortium approving symbols and then my phone being updated to the latest version of iOS so that I can access them. And I think that there is something a little bit creepy about that. If I send my husband who has an Android phone a message, it doesn't look the same as it did when I sent it. There's a weirdness there that keeps me from wanting to like jump on the bandwagon of isn't this the greatest way that we can augment our use of language. But people can be annoying in any in any arrangement of words and symbols. So I would encourage you to judge people on the annoying content rather than on the form. Catherine Connor Martin is head of U.S. Dictionaries at Oxford University Press. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks very much. We will be back in just a moment. Lexicon Valley is brought to you this week by Headspace. I have a short list of New Year's resolutions for 2016, and on that list is start meditating again. A few years back, I had a morning routine that I referred to as my staring at the wall time. It was effectively meditation, not any particular school of meditation, but rather my own approach. And then I moved and I changed jobs and I got out of my routine. But it's a great way to start the day and for many people, a great way to reduce stress and anxiety throughout the day. So if you've ever wanted to try meditation, make it your New Year's resolution and try the Take 10 program on Headspace. It's guided meditation for 10 days, just 10 minutes a day, and you can do it online or on the Headspace app at no cost whatsoever when you sign up at headspace.com slash lexicon. Meditation made simple at headspace.com slash lexicon. Okay, up next is Peter Sokolowski, who is editor-at-large at at Merriam-Webster. Hey, Peter. Hi there. So we know from talking to you last year that Merriam-Webster chooses its word of the year really by the numbers, by the lookups. 
you're able to tell, based on your many millions of visitors each month, which words are most popular, not just over the course of the year, but at any given moment, really, what people are looking up and even why, based on things that are going on in the news. So you crunched the numbers, you looked at the spreadsheets. What did you come up with for this year? The year was such a newsy year that we saw one thing that was shared by a bunch of the words near the very top of our list, and that was the suffix ism. The number one term being socialism, maybe not such a surprise, but socialism and then fascism, racism, feminism, and terrorism. And those words all connect with the news. They were all looked up in such great numbers that we decided to make ism the word of the year. And of course, ism is a suffix, but it's also a standalone word and has been for many centuries, right? Sure. Ism uh, is a noun. Now, we're naming the suffix in this case, but yeah, the noun that is almost always used in a kind of iteration or list. So you could say sort of cubism, impressionism, and all the other isms, that kind of thing. And you're right, that dates back to the 17th century, so there's nothing new about it. And I'll just mention that we do use our uh, sort of empirical data, the lookup data, maybe 100 million words a month uh, looked up, at the website. But if we only used that data, then the the list would be very boring year to year because it wouldn't change that much. What we also look at is the year over year increase in lookups for a given word. So not only the volume, but also the increase over last year. Now, just to be clear, the isms, even in the aggregate, didn't necessarily constitute the most searched word this year, because you've got some evergreens year after year that if you chose only based on lookups would perennially be the word of the year, right? Yes, and I believe it's pragmatic at the moment. Integrity is up there in the top 10. The word love is looked up a lot, and that tells us something about how people use the dictionary. They're, they're going not just for the lexical piece, for the spelling or the pronunciation or even the etymology. They're going for, I believe, the beginnings of some reflection. Uh, they're going for some kind of philosophical reason. That's why words like science and culture are up there as well. Also, the English language is just plain difficult, and affect and effect are also in the top 30, at least. And so, yes, those words don't change very much. We saw socialism move two or three spots this year up to number seven in the all-time list for the entire period our website has been online. That is by itself, uh, a measure of millions of lookups. Peter, I want to ask you one more thing, because I know what's coming up next. And there is a cousin of ism as a suffix, and that is ist, as in racist, sexist, misogynist, and of course, perhaps the most sinister, podiatrist, that get to identity politics and the reflex to denounce people for their supposed prejudices. In 2015, was ism shadowed by ist? That's a really good question. It's a little bit hard to measure because a lot of the ists are listed at the isms. So that if people are looking up, for example, feminist, they might land at the page of feminism. And of course, these words and all the ones you just cited, they're all essentially classical uh, Latin uh, Greek origins because ism is one of those language elements that came more or less directly from Greek. It went from Greek to Latin, it was absorbed by Latin, and of course Latin transferred into French, and then French was layered on top of the Anglo-Saxon language in the Middle Ages of English. So all these words come from classical roots, and they do also reflect something else that's true about words that come from Latin in English, and that is they reflect 
serious matters like government or medicine or law, and in this case, identity. And I think you've got your finger on something that's very important. Bernie Sanders uses socialism as part of his identity. Racism, we're talking about our national identity. And with feminism, absolutely ties into identity. You know, Peter, I guess there are two ways of looking at this. One is, oh my God, I can't believe people are looking up these terms. Why don't they know what they mean? But the other is, wow, this may be a way to measure engagement with what's going on in our culture, that people are interested in kind of figuring out the nuances of these terms. I I agree with you 100%. I think these words reveal our curiosity and not our ignorance. You know, if we go back to the very first Merriam-Webster online dictionary, we put it online in 1996. That's before there was an Internet economy, before Amazon and eBay and all the rest of it. And in 1997, a huge news event that was maybe the first news event that was widely shared through the Internet, and that was the death of Princess Diana. And we saw the words paparazzi, cortege, and princess were the three most looked up words. What is a princess? Does she have to be born a princess? Will she automatically become a queen? Like all of these, you might say, more encyclopedic questions. And also, in terms of the sad news of this year, terrorism, fascism, racism, we can also think of the dictionary as a kind of neutral place, a place of an even keel, and you go to the dictionary to start your reflection. Okay, so socialism, fascism, racism, feminism, communism, capitalism, and terrorism all sort of combining to propel ism to the top of your list and your word of the year. I-S-M-ism. Thank you so much, Peter. It's great to talk to you. Thank you. Peter Sokolowski is editor-at-large at at Merriam-Webster. All right, Lexicon Valley is also brought to you this week by Club W. I love having a glass of wine or two sometimes with dinner, but I am by no means a wine connoisseur, nor am I expert at pairing wines with food. At Club W, you answer just six questions regarding your palate, your gustatory preferences. Do you love citrus flavors? What about earthy foods like mushrooms and beets, some of my personal favorites? Answer six such questions, and Club W, based on your profile, will recommend wines and even suggest how best to pair those wines. As I speak, I have three bottles, en route, a Malbec, a red blend, and a Portuguese white, and I will likely have corked one or two by the time you hear my voice. With Club W, you get premium wine customized to your taste at a third of what you'd pay at the store, and they even have a no-risk, 100% guarantee that you'll love what they send you. Right now, Club W is offering Lexicon Valley listeners 50% off of your first order when you go to clubw.com slash lexicon. Don't ever come home to a wine-free house again. Just go to clubw.com slash lexicon and get 50% off your first order. That's clubw.com slash lexicon. Okay, last up is Jane Solomon, Senior Content Editor and Lexicographer at Dictionary.com, which chose identity as its word of the year. I think it's a great choice for reasons I will go into in a moment. But Jane, why identity? Well, I'm glad to hear that you think it's a great choice. This is very different from last year. Many factors went into choosing identity as our word of the year. We looked closely at trending user lookups as part of our research. We found that terms related to gender, sexuality, and racial identity, transgender, 
feminist, pansexual, marriage, and there, there were many more, too many to list, jumped out at us from the data from Caitlyn Jenner to the ruling of same-sex marriage as a constitutional right to Rachel Dolezal. Identity was very much on our minds this year. We also reflected on the words that had gained enough traction in 2015 to be added to dictionary.com. We notably added a new sense at the term identify to account for the common construction identify as. We also added two new senses at the term code switching, which maybe you guys will find interesting. That started off as a linguistic term, but has in the recent past expanded in meaning to encompass all aspects of identity. What we hitherto understood as code switching would be to change your vocabulary, your, your accent, your delivery of speech based on who the audience was, whether it's one person or a large number of people. But now you've expanded that to include what? The modifying of one's behavior, appearance, etc., to adapt to different sociocultural norms. So whereas code switching once upon a time was mostly about the way we speak and about how the way we change the way we speak depending on who we're talking to, you're saying that the dictionary.com definition has now been expanded to include ways that we communicate with the world that are not speech, our how behavior, we present. our comportment. Exactly. Yeah. So for all of the reasons you just listed, I think this was a great choice, as you suggested, from marriage equality to the increased awareness of and sensitivity to trans men and women to Rachel Dolezal, issues of gender identity, sexual identity, racial identity, cultural identity, all of these became very prominent socio-political issues and topics not just of conversation but of media coverage over the past year. And they have all been reflected to one degree or another in our language. You mentioned a term that I want you to talk a little bit more about, identify as. That's a kind of phrasal verb, as we would call it, a particular construction that we use idiomatically in the language. You added that to the dictionary this year. I think of that as a term that's been around, I don't know, for a long time, but I guess it's something that we hear more and more, I suppose. You're right. That term, that expression has been around for a long time. That doesn't mean that it is covered in every dictionary or in dictionary.com. A word like identify, because that word has been around for so long, it's harder to pull out new senses. It's relatively easy when you come across a word like fleek to say, oh, that's not in our dictionary. Mm -hmm. But when you're coming to subtle constructions within an already existing term, that's much more difficult for lexicographers. Yeah, I mean, I, I identify as having upper body strength, although it's not necessarily apparent to those who are, who are looking at me. <laughs> well, speaking of identify as... You mentioned Rachel Dolezal. I mentioned Rachel Dolezal. She is a woman who was president of a local chapter of the NAACP and was outed, I guess you'd say, as being white. I say outed because for much of her adult life, Dolezal presented herself as, identified as, either black or biracial or even a word that I think people probably heard for the first time maybe this past year as transracial. Or as it used to be known in a kind of reverse circumstances, passed. She passed for black much in the way that African-Americans were sometimes said to have passed for white. The term transracial has existed to refer to a person of mixed racial heritage, but this year it was used definitely in a new way, at least to me, 
which is noting or relating to a person whose racial identity does not correspond to the visible markers of that person's racial group by birth. And of course, just because Dictionary.com added a definition for this sense that has been used widely this year, it's not necessarily an endorsement. It's just an observation. This is a way that people are using this term. You know, my blood pressure is too stable right now. Let's see what I can do about that. You uh, gave some thought to the term that is very much a part of identity politics, microaggression, which uh, tends to trigger in me macro rage. So Dictionary.com defines microaggression as a subtle but offensive comment or action directed at a minority or other non-dominant group that is often unintentional or unconsciously reinforces a stereotype. So that might be if someone says to a black person, I don't see you as black. Or if someone says to a female musician, you're one of the best female musicians. Or as somebody said about the actor, the black British actor Idris Elba, that he was too street to play James Bond. Exactly. And after that happened, there were many commentators online who called that a microaggression. Now, microaggression is a much debated word. It gives some people, as we now know, micro-rage. Um, Macro-rage, I think Also, macro-rage, there we go. And because it's so new, I mean, it's not so new. It actually was coined in the 1970s, but its mainstream usage is relatively new. I expect to see changes in the term and how it's used over the next few years. We'll definitely be closely watching it, and we'll update our definition if we need to. My issue with it is, is that First of all, it imputes motive. And furthermore, it puts yet another political impediment on speech and communication. And it feeds the culture of the aggrieved that is, to me, the dark side of, of political correctness. It feeds that kind of tyranny of judgment that, you know, I think is antithetical to human intercourse. We try not to editorialize in our definitions. <laughs> But for many, microaggression can be seen as a term of privilege that you can escape being called a racist or sexist or xenophobe because you didn't mean it. And Bob is sort of suggesting exactly the opposite, that it's, it's a term of tyranny used against people who didn't mean it. And it, it can be seen in many different ways, which is why it's such a debated term. Well, Jane, thank you so much. Again, I I love identity as a word of the year. I think it really does capture a lot of the conversations that we've had over the course of 2015. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm glad you liked it because, you know, last year it was a little rocky. (laughs) We're back on good terms. But who knows what (laughs) 2016 will bring? Who knows? Yeah, who knows? Jane Solomon is senior content editor and lexicographer at dictionary.com. All right, so there you have it, Bob. Tears of joy, identity, and a whole slew of isms. A pretty satisfying selection that I think, as I've already said, does accurately capture some of the major kind of cultural motifs from this past year as reflected by our language. I'm pretty, uh, I'm pretty happy with the selection this year. Me too. They're all interesting linguistically, and they have their finger on the pulse of the zeitgeist and... Uh... Yeah, I like them all. I I think 
my favorite is identity because it so captures what's happened in the culture, both the political and social environments. It really has been uh, pervasive, maybe not as quirky as isms or an emoji, but, you know, I, I think it really nails it. Yeah. Okay, well, a happy and healthy new year to you, Bob, and to our listeners. I will see you in 2016. Thank you, and happy everything to you as well, Mikey. If you would like to write to us this year or next year, please do so at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. Follow us on Twitter at lexiconvalley. And please subscribe to our feed in the iTunes store. Many thanks to our lexicographer friends who spoke to us today and to Andy Bowers, the executive producer of Slate's podcasts. All right, Mikey. We done this year? This year is a wrap. <laughs> Later, Gator. In my own little world Since I was 16 Little Miss Playgirl Making the same Then you took this girl Queen. That's why I'm crying.